This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Item number one, green ooze and PFAS. They are related. There can be PFAS and green ooze. And there is evidently in 696 Interstate Highway Corridor in southern Oakland County, green ooze coming out onto the pavement from a shuttered electroplant company in Madison Heights. I think the owner is in jail. Uh, PFAS are poisons, contaminants within the green ooze. It's upsetting a lot of people in Southeast Michigan, particularly the Macomb County Public Works Commissioner, Candace Miller, who has said somebody ought to be accountable for this. She is worried because even though Madison Heights isn't in Macomb County, the county over which she presides, it is in Oakland. Nevertheless, uh, underground water, uh, the ooze could get into tributaries leading into Lake St. Clair on the edge of Macomb County, which supplies up to 4.2 million people with water in Southeast Michigan. So, a lot of concern about this. And at the state level, Attorney General Dana Nessel has joined a bunch of other states in filing suit against 17 companies nationwide, including huge ones like DuPont and 3M for operating companies with PFAS in their workplace that seeped into the ground, that has seeped into Michigan waterways. And this has been going on for years, and these companies knew about it, according to Dana Nessel and according to the various states that have filed suit. This is getting to be a national or international story. Even the territory of Guam has filed suit against these companies, including DuPont and 3M. So we're going to be hearing about this for a long time. Item number two, a criminal justice report came out from the Supreme Court uh, Court Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormick and Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist this week saying that county jails, local jails, are chock full of prisoners and inmates who maybe shouldn't be there because we have reached a record level of incarceration at the local jail level, 16,600 people in local prisons around the state. I'm not talking about state prisons. I'm talking about county and city jails now. And if you go back 45 years ago when people were really concerned about crime, there were only 5,170 people incarcerated in local city and county jails in Michigan. Now there's 16,600, three times more. And the crime rate Today is at a 50-year low in the state prison population. The state prison, not local prison. 
the state prison population is way down from what it was at one time. And the crime rate, as I said, is at a 50-year low. Why are these local jails so full of prisoners? Well, they're full of a lot of people who haven't been convicted of anything. These are way stations in the criminal justice system. People who are being held overnight, people who are public disturbances, they're mentally ill, uh, they're kind of become holding tanks, these county and city jails, for a lot of people who don't belong there. And this has got to change, says this report authored by Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormick and Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist presented to the legislature this week. So the legislature is having hearings on this and we'll see what happens going forward. Several other things this week. Item number three, uh, Peter Lucido, state senator from Macomb County, made some inappropriate comments to a female reporter uh, who wanted to ask him some questions about his participation in a website that was hostile to Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And they were standing among a group of Catholic schoolboys from De La Salle High School in Macomb County, uh, of which Peter Lucido is a graduate. And Peter Lucido said he thought apparently innocently, uh, you know, <clears throat> have you ever been to La Salle? De La Salle? He said to the female reporter, she said, no, I haven't heard of it. He said, well, you ought to, you know, get to know these guys. Uh, you could have a lot of fun with them. They could have a lot of fun with you. Well, she wrote an article saying she felt this was locker room, good old boy network, slang talk uh, that may have passed muster half a century ago, but doesn't anymore. That it constituted sexual harassment. She felt demeaned. She felt uh having a state senator among a group of males, even if they were schoolboys, so to speak, uh, being told that they could have fun with her was not a good thing to hear. So Peter Lucido has gotten himself into a lot of trouble. A lot of people, a lot of news outlets have written about it. It's been picked up nationally. And the Senate Majority Leader, Mike Shirky, says, well, you know, I'm taking this seriously and I'm turning it over to the Senate Business Office to look into it, whether Senator Lucido deserves any censure or punishment. We'll see where that goes. This is not the first time Senator Lucido has made somewhat controversial remarks. He's a very outspoken, loquacious individual. He's a trial lawyer. Uh, he's chairman of committees in the state Senate Judiciary and the Senate Oversight Committee. And he probably ought to button his lip. Loose lips sink ships, as they say. And nowadays, there are certain things you can't say or do. And by the way, a legislative staffer in the state Senate, Lamar Lemons, who's a former state representative, he got himself in some controversy this week because he posted some criticism of a very strongly worded nature on his Facebook website, I believe, 
uh, castigating the Chaldean community in Southeast Michigan for preying on African-Americans. Chaldeans run a lot of grocery stores and gas stations in Southeast Michigan that are patronized by racial minorities, particularly African-Americans. And apparently Lamar Lemons feels that these customers are being ripped off by the Chaldeans. So he blasted the Chaldeans and got a big pushback from the Chaldean community. They were outraged, and they have sent protests to the office of Senator Betty Jean Alexander, for whom Lamar Lemons works. And Betty Jean Alexander said, look, uh, what he said does not reflect my views. I never said this. I don't believe it. So there's another instance of somebody working in the legislature, whether an elected official or working for the legislature, getting crosswise with the news media and the general public on a very sensitive topic. Item number four, State Senator Jack Faxon. Services for him were held last Sunday in Oak Park in the Hebrew Memorial Chapel. Governor Gretchen Whitmer lowered the flag to half-staff in his honor. He was 83 years old, one of the most colorful characters ever in Michigan State government, was a senator for 30 years. His likes will never be seen again, in my opinion. I'm done with this segment, but we got some exciting guests coming up, so stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and I'm very fortunate to have on the other line here Chad Livengood, formerly of the Detroit News, uh, now senior editor at Crane's Detroit Business. Chad Livengood, thanks for being with us on The Political Insider. Thanks for having me, Bill. Well, Chad, you have written some really interesting stuff on the idea of toll roads in Michigan, or toll roads at least somewhere in Michigan, as a source of revenue for our eternal problem we can't seem to get away from or solve, and that is fix the damn roads. So I just wanted to ask you, what have you put forth, and what's your thinking? So um, I, I live down in Metro Detroit now in Macomb County, and I drive these roads every day, Bill, um, the, the uh, trunk lines, the, the, um, the city streets that are just completely uh, you know, broken, and a lot of the uh, highways. And one of the big highway projects that we've got in Metro Detroit that, that the state really doesn't have the money to fix uh, at this juncture is replacing and rebuilding I-94 in Wayne County. Uh, this, for just people's reference, is one of Michigan's and, and America's first interstate freeways. Um, it was built in the mid-50s, and slowly MDOT has been replacing two or three bridges a year for the last six or seven years. And at current pace, uh, based on just current revenue, MDOT should be done rebuilding all of this entire highway by 2039. Um, <laughs> That's a long time from now. And, <laughs> is that just um, the Wayne County portion of it, or you mean that's, from that's west to east? 
That's literally from Dearborn, Detroit border, Michigan Avenue to Roseville, uh, the first Roseville exit at like 12 miles. Wow. Uh, in Macomb County. I mean, and, and along the way there, there are still 40 bridges that have to be replaced. This year they're doing four of them. Uh, which is a record uh, all at once, but it just kind of gives you a kind of a perspective. The state needs three billion dollars to rebuild this 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 critical piece of infrastructure, um, and uh, based on current revenue, they can only do that by stretching it out over a period of twenty years. Um, it would literally, from perspective, three billion dollars would would take up all of MDOT's capital improvement budget for three years. Wow. They, would not, they would not fill one pothole anywhere else in the state if they were just to focus on rebuilding this one highway. Um, that is in pretty poor condition. They got, they, they're, and they're tearing down uh, one of the bridges uh, over Mount Elliott Street um, that uh, is a major thoroughfare for truck traffic coming out of the GM Hamtramck plant. They're tearing it down next month. That thing was built in '55. Um, and you can actually, if you want, Bill, you can come down and pick up a piece of it um, for, for a souvenir right now. Uh, <laughs> it's just falling apart. And oh, boy. So I, it, I, I say this, this is my wind-up context, that we need a different dynamic for how we think about these kind of major pieces of infrastructure. Um, and toll roads uh, presents one possibility where you could actually take this out of the system and have a toll road through Wayne County um, that would charge the users, both the, the heavy trucks who drive, drive through there um, because, and also the uh, daily commuters. Um, now, toll roads have always been dismissed in Michigan because we are a quote-unquote peninsula state. But when it, comes to, um, when it comes to heavy truck traffic and commercial truck traffic, we're not a peninsula state. We're a pass-through state. There's 4 million trucks crossing the Ambassador Bridge in Detroit and the, and the Blue Water Bridge in Port Huron every single uh, year. And those trucks, yes, there's a lot of traffic moving cars and parts and, and goods between Ontario and Michigan. There's also a lot of people that are just passing through, taking long-haul uh, truck uh, loads from Toronto or the Port of Halifax, and they're going west to Chicago or they're going to you know into Ohio or or somewhere else. So they're, they're using our, our roads. We, they do pay a prorated portion of gas tax to Michigan based on the mileage they drive through. Otherwise, um, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, kind of coming through and utilizing and, and clogging up our roads. Um, toll roads present a way to basically capture revenue from those, from those users um, but, and also the people that use it every day. Um, but and so the federal government bill has created a couple of options for for states to uh, create toll roads. One is basically through, and this might be the pathway for I ninety four, is, is through replacing bridges. Uh, you can they can they let you toll the bridge um, uh, overpass that you rebuild, and you toll, effectively still toll the whole highway. The other one is through high occupancy uh, lanes, which are pretty common in, 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 in California, Virginia, Florida, uh, New Jersey, where, where the, um, to drive in that lane, you have to have two or more people in the car um, or, or bus or whatever it is, a uh, vehicle. And, and, um, and we're actually going to have this for the first time in Oakland County 
on I-75, uh, the current widening project right now, um, to add a fourth lane to I-75 in southern Oakland County. You know, that, that new fourth lane, northbound and southbound, is going to be um, a high-occupancy high vehicle lane known as an HOV lane. The feds will let you toll HOV lanes um, at variable prices. So you would actually have a situation where you could toll 50 cents uh, toll or a dollar to drive in the HOV lane and a dollar or two dollars uh, to drive in the other lanes. Basically, um, try to encourage more carpooling, particularly um, in, in Oakland County where you have a ton of commuters coming out of the northern suburbs and coming to work uh, in Detroit. Right. Uh, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, Michigan is actually a pass-through state to a greater extent than most people realize, even if we're a peninsula. I mean, you come across the Blue Water Bridge or the Ambassador Bridge, 94 and 69, they're the highways to the west, like Chicago, and as you say, the entire Midwest. So there, are, there's a lot of traffic that goes through there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I-69 and 94 are sometimes referred to in the trucking industry as the NAFTA freeways. <laughs> um, I mean, well, and I guess we, I guess we have to call that USMCA now, right, Bill? Yeah. Um, as of this morning, uh, right, uh, right. Congress has uh, ratified the the president's trade agreement. Right. Um, but but uh, essentially, yeah, there is a ton of traffic that is moving goods and parts. Um, uh, there's you know engines built in Ontario that get shipped down to Mexico via I-69 and 94. Um, uh, or they get shipped to um, uh, another plant uh, somewhere in the south. Uh, or in, uh, So they are moving through uh, Michigan. As you can imagine, truckers do not like uh, tolls. Uh, they already pay enough of them. Um, but it's not like they're not already right. for it. I mean, they're, they're, they're paying tolls. I mean, if, if they wanted to bypass Michigan uh, and try to, try to bypass a toll road to Michigan, they'd have to cross in Buffalo. Uh, Niagara Falls area, <laughs> and then they would I know. get on I-90 and Let's, I-80. Listen, I, I want to keep talking about this, but we're out of time. I mean, honestly, i got to get you back on. we got to talk about this some more because it's really fascinating. We haven't even gotten into a lot of the substance, but you've done a great job of describing the situation down there. Thank you, Chad, live and good. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. We'll be back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and uh, this is a bit of a curveball on a program of this nature. It's not really Michigan politics, but it does involve, at least indirectly, a Michigan personality. We'll get into this a little later, but I'm very fortunate to have on the other line David Mad Dog DeMarco. Radio. Hey, Bill, how are you? Happy I'm, New Year. I am great. Happy New Year to you, sports radio personality, WVFN. Um, I want to ask you, Mad Dog, about the Houston Astros uh, brouhaha. Can you just briefly explain it? I mean, I know it's been all over the media for the last uh, few days, but uh, maybe uh, come up with your perspective on it. Well, I mean, this has got a lot of tentacles to it, so I'm going to try to make it as brief as possible because we only got so much uh, time. But I appreciate you letting me come on your program trying to explain this. Well, I mean, there was a suspect uh, with the Houston Astros here in the last couple of years, and 
Mike Fires, who used to pitch for the Astros. Of course, he was uh, cut loose, and the Detroit Tigers picked him up, and he didn't really say anything about anything when he was with the Astros about them uh, stealing signs through technology and cameras and then relaying at the dugout. But then this year, uh, he was, of course, traded by the Tigers to the Oakland A's uh, two years ago. And uh, since then, with the A's, he pitched a no-hitter. So, I mean, Fires is a good pitcher. And uh, he came out, and he, sort of like how Canseco was the whistleblower with the steroids, he was the whistleblower with what the Astros were doing. And what they were doing is the center field camera was stealing signs from the catchers, uh, the opposing catchers, and then they would relay it to the media room, and then they'd relay it to the dugout. And then the Houston Astro uh, players would uh, either through a buzzer, a whistle, or uh, you know taking a bat and knocking it on a tin can or some sort of noisemaker uh, that you would know it's either a ball or, or, or excuse me, a curveball or a fastball or uh, of that coming around. And uh, so that they they investigated that. Rob Banford, uh, the commissioner of baseball, did. And that this came out about two and a half, three months ago, and probably through a lot of interviews, uh, found out that, you know, they were cheating. And they won a World Series two years ago. They were one game from winning two World Series in three years. How much this played in to offensively them taking advantage of pitchers, we'll never know. But they still were cheating. And then A.J. Hinch, who was their manager, and their general manager obviously was in on it, all the players were in on it, and I'll get to that in a second. And those guys, by Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, fired both those individuals. Well, they were suspended first by Major League Baseball, and then they were fired by the owner of the Astros. Well, then it rolls over into the Boston Red Sox, and Alex Cora was the bench coach when they won the World Series with the Astros. He got hired and, and took the Red Sox to a World Championship the year after that uh, in 2018, the Boston Red Sox won a World Series. So their ownership, he was suspended for a, a year, and their ownership fired him two days ago. Then yesterday, Carlos Beltran, who has not managed yet, former Lugna, their inaugural year, uh, he was hired by the Mets to take over. He'd be a first-year manager. And then they fired him, and now it's come out that uh, they think that maybe Jose Altuve, great, Ball player, a most valuable player, ball player that he might been wear. He might be wearing a wire or a buzzer inside his jersey. And I saw it this morning on Twitter. Him crossing the plate, holding his jersey real quick, so his teammates couldn't have pulled on his jersey. So the whole thing is just absolutely unequivocally unbelievable that these guys would go. You know, and, and cheating has always been part of baseball in in, in pushing the envelope. But this goes. Uh, above and far uh, above what you know you can get away with. Well, David, uh, that you bring up the the important point to me. I mean, what is really when you get right down to it, the difference between the New York Giants stealing catcher's signs from the center field bleachers in 1951 and relaying it to Bobby Thompson, and then he hits the shot heard around the world, and the Giants win the pennant. Between then and now, what's happened is technology. Technology right. is just so enhanced that it can be done more efficiently, more easily, more, uh, you know, under the wraps, the people undetectable, whatever you want to call it. But it's the same thing. 
And I mean, I, I don't understand the huge difference that people are seeing between the cheating going on today and the cheating that, as you say yourself, has always been part of baseball. I mean, look at when the pitchers uh, and the catcher and the manager confer on the mound. They cover their faces with their gloves so people can't see their lips. Uh, You see Bill Belichick uh, on the sidelines in NFL football with a program over his mouth so that people can't see, uh, steal what he's uh, saying. I mean, people are trying to do this. All this is is technology on steroids. Well, I mean, you look at it like this. You know, I'd have to know a little bit more about Bobby Thompson shot around the world, and I know that 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 was uh, said that they stole the signs, and he knew. I don't exactly know extensively to even comment on that, but I do know enough about to comment on this. I do know that uh, these guys were doing it, and that's why these guys were suspended. I mean, you couldn't really suspend them. I mean, Manford, Houston got, uh, they're taking away two, the first and second round draft choices in in June's draft this year and next year. So that's going to hurt them. And then they also, $5 million to a professional baseball team is spitting in the wind. So that's nothing. But now they got to go out. These three teams got to go out, and they got to hire three new managers. Pitchers and catchers report around Valentine's Day. And, you know, the thing is, Jessica Mendoza, who does Sunday Night Baseball with Alex Rodriguez, she was a really, really outstanding softball player. And she's hired, the Mets hired her, and she works for the, the New York Mets. She was on with Mike Golick yesterday on ESPN's morning show and Trey Wingo, and she more or less was like saying that Mike Fires, the guy that I started talking about, that he should have kept that in-house somewhat like what, what goes on in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. And I totally disagree with that. If you do that, you're, the problem is just going to fester more well, and let more me, and let more. Me, I mean, let me bring up this. Uh, Justin Verlander was very outspoken about cheating in baseball when he was with the Tigers, and yet after he was traded to the Astros – they won the pennant in the World Series in 2017, and there's been silence from Justin Verlander about this whole thing. He hasn't said a thing. Well, what's going on here? Well, there's been silence from Tony Clark, former Tiger and Yankee and Arizona Wildcat basketball player. He is the president of the Players Association. He has not made one statement at all. Justin Verlander, on the other hand, what you said, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, this year, he was uh, he gave up a lot of home run balls, and they, he was trying to say that the ball is juiced and, and this, that, and whatever. Also, he had Anthony Fennick, who was a writer for the Tigers uh, in Detroit when the Astros played the Tigers. Uh, he had a axe to grind with him and wouldn't let him in the, the locker room or some brouhaha. It's sort of hypocritical. And like I said, it's, it's spread through. And, it, and, and, you know, these two teams that I'm pointing out, they both won back-to-back World Series, the Astros and the Red Sox. How much this helped them? it still gave them an ample edge on the pitching that they were going against. And Trevor Bauer, who pitched for Cleveland and then was traded to Cincinnati, he called them out on it. And A.J. Hinch, I've seen interviews with it. And A.J. Hinch sort of poo-pooed it and was laughing about it. When the Yankees got eliminated by the Astros just this postseason, they heard a whistling noise consistently and, and, and the postgame presser in the, the playoffs. And A.J. Hinch sort of just poo-pooed that, too. And the whole thing is, if you're going to cheat, you're going to lie, you're going to get caught, I don't care what you do, and now these guys uh, are with, you know, I don't think they're going to get banned from baseball like the 1919 Black Sox did, uh, Shoeless Joe or Pete Rose, but I know one thing, they've stained baseball, 
And, uh, you know, and P, like I said, there's been cheating in baseball. It's one thing if you can pick up a sign or you see a pitcher's tipping pitches or something like that. But when you go out of your way to have technology through media cameras, uh, picking up signs, and then these guys doing that, that's a little bit over the top. And that's why this is they were proactive in getting rid of these guys in baseball. Hey, listen, Dave, Mad Dog DeMarco, you've done a fantastic job of putting everything in perspective, covering the whole landscape of the huge baseball scandal involving the Houston Astros and, for that matter, the Red Sox and the Mets. And uh, we may come back to this later on. Let's see where it goes from here. But, David, Mad Dog DeMarco, you've done a great job. Thank you. You're welcome. Anytime, Bill. Appreciate it. You guys have a great weekend. Same to you, Dave. We'll be back. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with a special guest. Dennis Eade is the executive director of the Michigan Steelhead and Salmon Fishermen's Association. He is over in Holland, Michigan. And uh, Dennis Eade, welcome to The Political Insider. Well, thank you, Bill. Appreciate the opportunity to share with your listeners this morning. Yeah, look, I want to ask you about fishing rights in Michigan. Now, this is really a complex subject. As I understand it, there are a bunch of lease arrangements, agreements, contracts uh, expiring this year between Native American tribes in Michigan and uh, the sportsmen's fishing industry in Michigan. I don't know whether commercial fishermen or involved or not. Could you explain what is going on? I'd be happy to. Let me begin by explaining what the Great Lakes Consent Decree is. Back in 1979, the U.S. District Court ruled that the five northern Michigan Indian tribes that are signatories to the 1836 Treaty of Washington had a valid treaty right to fish in the Great Lakes and take whatever fish they wanted. As a result of this ruling, the state of Michigan, the United States, and the tribes entered into consent decrees in 1985 and again in 2000 to implement the court's ruling. The agreement is a legal document which defines the extent of the tribal rights and describes how the state and the tribes will cooperatively allocate and manage the fisheries in the 1836 treaty seceded waters of the Great Lakes. Most notably, waters from Alpena on Lake Huron, north and around into Lake Michigan, south to as far as Grand Haven. The DNR co-manages Michigan's resources based on scientific management, along with the tribes and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That means that the parties review one another's fish stocking proposals and uh, collaboratively develop harvest limits for species such as lake trout and whitefish. Species that do not have specific harvest limits are managed with seasons, area closures, depth restrictions, fear restrictions, daily possession limits, and size limits. Now, why the, agree- the agreement is so important to sport fishermen in the state is that it protects game fish like salmon and steelhead trout 
walleye and perch from being targeted for commercial harvest by the approximately 250 licensed tribal fishermen. This has resulted in the involvement and development of a $2.5 billion sport fishery in Michigan. And as, as far as the Great Lakes Basin is concerned, it's as high as $7.1 billion. So it's very important to sports fishermen. Now, on August 8, 2020, the consent decree expires unless current negotiations are successful in reviewing or amending it going forward. There have been nine formal meetings so far among the parties, which include our Sport Fishing Advocacy Group, which is Citizens to Protect Michigan Resources, CPMR, as it's known, has been granted a Mekai Cure status by the court. So we can sit in and listen only and then consult with the MDNR in side sessions so that sport fishermen's concerns are seriously considered in the negotiations. All parties have entered into a confidentiality agreement, so I cannot talk about what is specifically being discussed. That said, the key issues include how many available fish, including lake trout, walleye, and salmon stocks, are managed, and how many fish of a particular species are available to be caught. Reporting requirements, gear restrictions, the use of electronic reporting to provide instantaneous harvest information um, so that quotas are not exceeded are being negotiated as well. Finally, there are law enforcement concerns and a dispute resolution process that is fair and with meaningful penalties if violations occur that need to be agreed upon. That's the background to these negotiations and why it's so important to those of us who enjoy sport fishing. Yeah, let me ask you, how important is it that you reach an agreement this summer? Uh, what if you don't? What if you just can't agree? Then what? Well, what will happen is that the negotiations hopefully will continue, that the, uh, the tribes will see the benefit of at least continuing discussions. And uh, because, frankly, I believe the consent uh, agreement has benefited the tribes as much as it has sport fishermen. Uh, the tribes really don't want to be um, in, encumbered by uh, tribal fishers continually to uh, violate and having to be uh, monitored by their own um, uh, uh, police force that the tribes have set up. They'd like to be able to defer to the DNR on issues of regulation and not be uh, constantly policing their own members. So I think they have benefited from the consent decree as much as uh, sports fishermen. But again, there's always those uh, individuals in the tribes that are uh, commercial fishers that don't necessarily want to have rules and regulations. They want to be able to do whatever they feel uh, justifies and, and helps their business. Tennessee, so, uh, let me it, let me ask you this question. Are all the Indian tribes on the same page? It's my understanding that the lease that expires this summer was done with collectively all the Indian tribes, whereas now, going forward, their individual tribes 
that want to negotiate their own separate agreement uh, rather than be part of an overall Indian or Native American compact. Is that correct or not? That, uh, that observation is correct. However, when it really comes down to the last minute, uh, I have a feeling that there's more benefit to a consolidated uh, agreement than there is in separate agreements. If we have to, if the DNR and the state of Michigan has to, I'm sure they would uh, be willing to continue negotiations with the individual uh, tribes, of which there are five, uh, using a uh, maybe an overall model and then uh, addressing specific tribal issues that might affect the waters uh, that they are designated or zones that they're designated to have rights in. So. I'm hopeful that there will be one consolidated agreement, but if we need to have five, then uh, in order to protect our sport fishery, we would be more than willing to continue negotiating based on that premise. Right. Um, So let me make sure I understand that this is not just the Great Lakes. These are rivers within Michigan that are covered by these uh, lease agreements? Um, What we're negotiating right now is strictly the Great Lakes. There is an inland water agreement that is in effect and is currently uh, not up for renegotiation at this time. All right. Well, that that makes uh, that very, very interesting. Well, in other words, at this point, uh, you're hoping then it's almost kind of like a teacher's uh, negotiation with a school board. Uh, If they don't reach an agreement by a certain deadline— uh, the old agreement kind of continues in force in many cases indefinitely until they reach an agreement. And you're kind of hoping that will be the case in this situation if they don't actually come up with either one agreement or five separate agreements by the deadline this summer, that the Indians will be willing to comply with the old agreement until uh, a final agreement can be made whenever that might be, and they'd continue to talk to the DNR and so forth. Absolutely, Bill. That's our best hope. The last thing we need is, is, is uh, tribal fishers and sport fishermen uh, to get into confrontations on the water after August 8th because uh, independent action's being uh, initiated. We, we really hope that, that uh, calmer uh, minds and uh, and uh, uh, people around the table will see the value in continuing to discuss and maintaining the agreement until such time as a new one uh, is finalized. Okay, listen, you have done a great job, Dennis, the Executive Director of the Michigan Steelhead and Salmon Fishermen's Association in explaining this very complex but very significant negotiation that's going on between the five Indian tribes in Michigan and the state of Michigan about fishing in the Great Lakes. Thank you so much, Dennis Ead. You're welcome, Bill. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next week. Yep, we'll be back next week.